0: The following session of Radios and Tunnels contains a few choice expletives due to the passionate nature of the conversation. So if you're easily offended by the occasional or perhaps a, then by all means, adjust your listening expectations and all-around reception strategy for this particular session accordingly.
1: Like many first-gen immigrants, I had lost the language and rejected the culture. Hanging out with artists like A Tribe Called Quest, Jungle Brothers and De La Soul, who led the native tongues movement steeped in Afrocentrism, opened my eyes to another possibility. Watching these artists yearn for a connection to their motherland kindled in me a curiosity about mine. That low-burning flame burst into an inferno when I met Wu-Tang. Experiencing up close the clan's deep love of and respect for Asian culture was phenomenally empowering. They introduced me to kung-fu flicks and a new lens through which to view modern Asian masculinity. Having been raised in the West, it was revelatory to enter this world of cinema where my brothers were the hero, the villain, and the lover, as opposed to the emasculated roles to which Hollywood had relegated them. And... They were fucking hot.
0: That's the voice of Sophia Chang reading from the prologue of her brand new book, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. It's an incredible memoir with great stories about her life in the music business with people like Paul Simon, The RZA, Old Dirty Bastard, Method Man, Raphael Sadiq, D'Angelo, so many great artists. And in the middle of all of that, she took a detour and ran the temple for a Shaolin monk who she also started a family with. She's a fascinating person and I had no idea who she was until a couple of months ago. I was watching the new Wu-Tang documentary on Showtime and she popped onto the screen talking about being the manager for the band. Very interesting. Well, later that week I was talking to my buddy Adrian Quesada, who you heard on session four of Radios and Tunnels. He of course is the band leader for the Black Pumas. We were talking about the Wu doc and he said, oh man, you should try to get Sophia Chang on your podcast. And I was like, oh, dude, I just saw her in the dock. You know her? He goes, yeah. For a while, we were the backing band for the Jiza, and she had set all that up. Which, by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, the name of this podcast comes from a line in the Jizza's Liquid Swords. I'm a huge fan. I love the Wu. So I thought, man, I've got to get her on the podcast. Got her number, left a message, and when she called me back, Before she even said hello, the first thing out of her mouth was, I'm not in the music business anymore. And my first reaction was, well, that's okay. I still want you on my podcast. I explained to her what we were doing, the kind of conversations we were going to have, and how I thought she was a perfect fit. She said, well, not right now, but maybe in a couple months when my memoir comes out. So let's fast forward to now. I'm Jeff Wade. This is Radios and Tunnels. We talk about a lot of different things. But today we're going to talk about really the first audiobook I've ever listened to. I mean, I read a lot of books, but I've never listened to one. But if I was going to make this work, I needed to listen to it before I had her on. And I got to say, it was pretty kick-ass. We talk about the production of it. We talk about her life in music. We talk about the Wu-Tang Clan. We talk about raising kids. It's a great conversation, and I think you're going to dig it. Yeah. <laughs> okay so to start here Sophia you've done a lot of really really unique and interesting things that your average person hasn't done so as you kind of take and I'm sure this part of this is what the the memoir is but as you take a step back and look at your life as a whole what do you think people find to be the most interesting thing about you
2: I think they think the me as the first Asian woman in hip-hop who was so closely aligned with Wu-Tang Clan is probably the most interesting thing specifically because Wu-Tang's whole aesthetic is grounded in Asian culture.
0: So one of the things that I found really interesting about your story is that at an early part in your career, you left the music business and you started a family with a Shaolin monk. And I I really dug the fact, it's funny, I related to your story even though we're so different because you ended up learning a lot about yourself through somebody else's culture. So where I think I want to go next is you deciding to go and, and seek out you know, that style of Kung Fu and learning more about that and why you did that. What led you to do that?
2: So my journey to studying Kung Fu, Fu and ultimately embracing my own culture was circuitous and came by hip-hop and specifically Wu-Tang. I grew up in Vancouver in the 70s and I wanted to be white because there was was no message telling me that me as a Korean Canadian girl that I was powerful or attractive. And I think this is a very common experience for first-generation immigrants. And then I heard in 12th grade, I heard the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and it completely opened my doors to new possibilities. And then I moved to New York and I got into hip hop and I met Wu-Tang and being experiencing up close. And personally, their deep love of respect for Asian culture was really eye-opening and empowering. And, you know, hearing all the Kung Fu samples and then the samples of the John Mu movies, I went down that rabbit hole and thought it was incredible. And, you know, for me, growing up in North America, the representations of me in media are all through the white male gaze. So, watching a movie filled with Asians written and directed and produced by Asians is a completely different experience. And getting to see my brothers and my sisters play every single role was exhilarating. So I started watching Kung Fu movies with my girlfriend, Maria Ma, who's Taiwanese American. And we said, fuck it, let's start training in Kung Fu. <laughs> and we went around to a bunch of different schools. And then we heard there was a Shaolin monk teaching. And for those that don't know what that means, that is tantamount to Julia Child opening a cooking school down the street or Pavarotti opening an opera school. Mm-hmm. So we started training. And I have Wu-Tang to thank for that. I really do. He became my husband, although we were never formally married. Uh, he became my partner and father of my children. And I wouldn't have the children that I do if it wasn't for Wu-Tang.
0: It's it's so interesting, too, because when you're first getting into it, I mean, even like the way that the, the the Wu-Tang presented stuff, it seemed like a million miles away. It seemed like another universe. And so you're when you're first getting into it, Does it feel, I don't know what the word would be. I'm not trying to trivialize it. Did it feel novel to you or did you, as soon as you were getting into this, did you feel a connection to that culture?
2: I would say that my connection to hip hop was that I heard an anger and and saw defiance, but I hadn't seen in people of color, certainly not my people. Mm Mm-hmm. We were never represented that way. And frankly, many of us weren't that way because we've all internalized the model minority. Men. So that was my way in. And then, of course, there's the allure of big city living. Right. And that was really exciting because I always knew that I was going to, not always, not as a child, but certainly as a young adult, adult I knew that I was going to break out of Vancouver. And it was either going to be Paris because I was a French major or it was going to be New York. And I went to Paris and I met the Parisians and I came to New York and I met New Yorkers. And then there was, it wasn't even, there was no debate.
0: That, that's a really, so it felt. Uh huh. no, I was going to say that's a really unique thing to me too is the idea of when you left Vancouver trying to figure out what you're going to do because to go to, I believe it was the Roxy you went to where you saw, was it Joey Ramone? And you mm-hmm. sought him out. And th- there's, there's something about that, the idea of, You know, sort of manifesting, you know, these ideas of, or, or, you know, visualizing what it is that you want to be. I don't know that you left Vancouver. At least I didn't perceive that from the book that, hey, I'm going to go make my mark in the music business. But that's right. Yeah. To not Mm -hmm. only befriend one of the Ramones, but then maintain a relationship and where it led you, there's something extra dynamic about that that's not just, ah, happenstance. Ah, I met a Ramone. There's almost like you manifested that.
2: Uh, I think that. Sure. I think manifestation, it could be manifestation. I think that what you would gather from listening to my memoir is that I'm pretty fucking fearless. <laughs> no doubt. And I've been that way forever. You know, I asked my mother when I was writing, one of my editors said, you know, was there ever a time where you, where you were unsure of yourself? I mean, and I said, you know what, let me ask my mother. And I called my mother and I said, Mom, was there ever a time that I was insecure? And she just laughed. She said, ha, Sophia, you? <laughs> never. <laughs> you were always so confident. You always knew who you were and what you wanted and how to get it. Now, of course, again, within the confines of being a petite Asian girl, right? Living in North America, but still I was very, very sure of myself and it translated in something like my friend pointing out Joey Ramone, me thinking it was Johnny and just marching right up to him and, introducing myself.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So, you know, I look at that as my first true act of networking. And, you know, that single act of intrepidity set off in motion. That was a domino that tipped everything that led me to where I am today.
0: Yeah, to get the job as early as you did working, I mean, it's not just any rock star that you're working for, and I think you really articulated this in the book, Paul Simon's a different dynamic altogether. And so I am... (laughs) I am uh, age wise, just so you know. So I graduated in '89. So I'm probably you know five or six years behind you or whatever. But mm-hmm. I was in I was in high school when he had his resurgence. Paul Simon did, and I and I was always mm-hmm. a Paul Simon fan growing up or whatever. But I had these real specific memories of him talking about when Graceland came out and uh, and all that thing was happening. And so I have so as I as I read this. I or I actually heard the audiobook version. I felt they had all these connections to you. But that was one thing that I found really interesting is man, that is your entrance into the music world Is Paul fucking Simon? You gotta be kidding me. That's that's a really <laughs> high place to start right there.
2: And I only got there because I met Joey Ramon who introduced me to his friend, the legendary music journalist and rock critic Lex McNeil. Right. Whose girlfriend at the time, Carol, worked for Paul Simon, right? So that's what I'm saying. And then when I'm working at Paul Simon, I meet the incomparably amazing Mo Austin, Lenny Warner, Michael Austin, Michael who becomes and remains to this day my mentor and one of my closest friends and who has opened so many doors for me and brought me to so many
0: tables. I, I think one of the things I really dug too is just how many people believed in you. So, so I have never listened to an audio book before. Now, I mean, there's, I've heard mm-hmm. snippets or whatever, but um, mm-hmm. I, so I flew through your book uh, listening to it. Thank you. And I'm a, and I'm a, because of my job working in media, I'm a very busy person. I don't really have a lot of time for this sort of stuff, but I was so mm-hmm. interested in it. I kept listening. It kept, you. oh, it's, it's really, it's, I'm not blowing smoke. It's kick ass. I love it. Um, but but one of the things that is that I was kind of going through this that sort of, I don't want to say distracted me, but I was so amazed by the production of the audiobook. because it's one thing to write a memoir, but to get the voices, you mentioned Michael, and then there's the voice yeah. of Method Man and yeah. the Jizza yeah. and, yeah. and your mom and all these people weighing in. Yeah. I'm real yeah. curious about how that came to be, you know, because they're characters in your story as I sit here and I listen to it.
2: Well... Number one, I'm a fucking genius, right? (laughs) And I'm really original and I'm really creative. And I come from the audio world. So when I was shopping, when my agent and I were shopping the book deal, I had a substantial offer on the table from one of the big publishing houses. And then I did a call with Jessica almond my editor at Audible. And the second I got on the phone with her, She said, you know, Sophia, we would like to create a bespoke audio experience for your memoir. And I, and immediately, so as soon as I knew I was writing a book, I knew that the book would open with the Method Man in the studio story. And as soon as she said that, I said, wait a second, by bespoke, do you mean I can do whatever I want? She said, yeah, kind of. And I said, then I want to have Method Man read this part. Because she adds the proposal, she got, she got that, that chapter, that uh, story was part of the proposal. And I said, then I want to have Method Matt read his voice. And she said, okay. And I have combined these elements, my voice, 24 people reading their own dialogue, sound design, original score and licensed music licensed music scratched him by dj scratch no one has ever done this before. no no ever. no
0: no and hey and if we're doing this podcast i jumped jump through hoops to try to license the fucking songs that i want and i'm listening to this going is this normal audiobook shit i have i been missing no. all this i had no idea this was happening no you're you you will never i i've spoiled you it's like you've flown for
2: it's like you've flown private and now you have to go sit in coach you'll well, never every other audiobook you listen
0: to you're going to be like meh Nah, fuck it. I'm not going to listen to that shit. I'll only read from here on moving forward. <laughs> you, you, and unless you. it's something you're you for, producing. Thank you
2: for recognizing and acknowledging that. Look, it was a behemoth undertaking, yes. and I knew that from the beginning. And I knew that it it had to be me. I'm not going to send some poor engineer from Audible down to Norfolk, Virginia, to like track down and wait for Method Man. You know, I recorded all of those guys. In their hotel rooms i had to go to them it is you i I couldn't just call them and say hey come to the studio i mean it's wu-tang they're they're celebrating their 20th anniversary they just had the showtime four-part you know, a series documentary. They now have a 10-part Hulu series. They're on tour. So they're super, super busy. And I sat with Method Man and Red Man at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I recorded them. There's nobody else that can do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask anybody else to do it, and they wouldn't let anybody else
0: do it. Uh, that's okay. That's the thing that I was thinking because as I was listening to this and hearing the different pits of dialogue, my, one of my thoughts is, okay, did they ever change in this dialogue and go, no, so if we, I said it like this, and I'm wondering, because I know how hard it is when I used to produce music, sure. how hard it is, hey, I need you to say it with this cadence, or this, people, you're dealing with artists, and they all have their own vision, uh, and then you, the whole idea of rounding all of this up in the first place, and then sometimes right. people don't want to be represented a certain way. Did you encounter any of that stuff?
2: No, 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 no. I mean, I know everybody. So, well, um, there were a couple, sure. So I would say, for instance, um, Ray Kwan is in there. And I tell the story about helping write the cream treatment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you, I'm sure you know the line. Um, Same damn low sweater and r- is rough and tough like leather. And when I first met them, I asked him, what's a low sweater? Yes. And he said, you know, that's what we call polo soap. And so in my memoir, I wrote that that's what we call polo. So I wrote those six words. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the first time I'm going through it with him again, in a hotel room, he says, we go through it and he reads it. Cause he's reading it off the page. And I said, you know, Ray, you don't have to say exactly this. You can say whatever you want. He's like, Oh, I can. <laughs> and then what he gave me is so much richer than what I wrote. It's incredible. So they were all given license, some did, and some didn't. Everybody was given license to say what they wanted. Ray is the one that what, that, that went the most that, that went the most off script, and it was wonderful and and you know, and then there were times where I would um, adjust tone, right, say, "You know what? Um, actually, you responded more like this. You responded whether it was you laughed or there was more consternation or you know. You were angry or whatever it is. And they all took it really, really, really well. I mean, I I assembled an incredible cast of characters, and it was a Herculean task. But I knew, you know what, Sophia? You're going to get... I, this was literally planes, trains, and automobiles. I flew... i flown all over the place to get these, the voices. I've been in cars, I've been on planes, I've been on trains. I've, you know, just been all over the place trying to get them because I knew that it would enrich the experience because I come from the music business, because I have managed composers, because I've managed rappers, because I've been in innumerable studios. I knew that having their voice, like having Method Man deliver those lines in that story in the prologue yeah, I could do it, and I could do it well because it's my life and I remember, right? Mm-hmm. But having him deliver those lines with the kind of ferocity that he did was incredible. And also, half the people in this, we know their voices. Right. So when I talk about Ghost, and then you hear Ghost's voice, or when I talk about Q-Tip, I mean, nobody, nobody in hip-hop has a voice like Q-Tip, no,
0: right? No, it's the so one of the that, most singular voices, without a doubt.
2: Exactly. So it was a massive production. Um, yes, and absolutely. Clearing the music was hard because yeah. no one's ever done it. My producer at Audible said, "So no one has ever done this before. So when we went to go clear the music, shout out to Deborah Manis Gardner, who was the number one clearance agent in the country and has been doing it for as long as I've been in the music business, over 25 years. She, you know, the people that we went to, there was no precedent. So it was more. Time-consuming than it normally would be. It's not just like, "Hey, I'm going to use you know, seven seconds of this in the opening credits of this movie or whatever." They, you know, they there was um, there there was con- conversation around it because it was unprecedented.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really like too uh, is when you sort of break from the reading. It for at more emotional parts if you I don't know the best way to describe it but there's parts where I can tell this isn't written this way in the book she's adding an aside right here in the middle of this sure and I I don't th- I sure. know those those moments were really cool because they kind of break narrative they break the suture but in a really great way uh, if that makes right, sense
2: it's, right right it's kind of like breaking the fourth wall no I appreciate that you know I I in pre- preparation for this I read. I mean rather I listen to many, many audiobooks and I listen to many audio memoirs. And I simply don't understand unless you're just not good at it, which is common, I do not understand writing a memoir and not reading your own text. Yeah. Um and Kat, my producer, said, Man, Sophia, you're you're better than a lot of the professionals we get in here. I mean I recorded, you know, it's seven and a half hours, I recorded that myself, my own voice in 20 hours.
0: Wow. Which is, extro- which is extraordinarily. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's incredible. My and, producer is sitting across me and yeah. nodding his head going, shit, that's really good. But, but you're, <laughs> you're, it's your I, story and, and you're a professional I, you know, and speaker. And those
2: moments, like for instance, if I was an actor reading that, I wouldn't have cried when I talk about losing Chris Lighty, God rest his soul or losing my father. Why would I? Right. 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 So I might emote, but I'm not going to break down and cry. That's my life. Yeah. That's my love and my heart breaking that I hope gets across.
0: In, in, in that, and that's something, too, that I wanted to take uh, the proper reverence with talking to you because I don't want to trivialize the fact that this is your memoir and your story. However, I'm also listening to it from the perspective of a lifelong hip-hop fan that actually tried... <laughs> you should, as I, you should. I, I tried to get a record deal, almost got a record deal. I made hip-hop. I was one of three yes. white guys in the club, so that experience... <laughs> you know, it's funny... <laughs> It there, there's that there's that whole experience where people will go, oh, you wish you were black, and it wasn't that um, for me. There's something that you achieved in this that I made it made me realize something about myself. I never wished I was black. I wanted the acceptance of black people, if that makes sense. Sure. I wanted to be accepted on their terms in their space. And that was the thing that I was craving. I didn't want someone to go, oh, you think you're, I didn't want that. I just wanted the people that were doing their thing to respect where I was coming from. And as I was listening, I was like, this person fucking did that at the highest level. And to set the tone with the way that, you know, the fucking Wu-Tang Clan, basically they were your protectors. That's an amazing level of acceptance.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, kind of a stupid statement you know uh, oh you you want to be black well then let's then you have to examine what does it mean to be black in america well i don't know go listen to the 1619 project right go read nicole hannah jones writing is that really you know is that what you're telling me yeah that i want this Right, that I want to be a child of the legacy of slavery, white <laughs> supremacy. I mean, that's just. I I think that that's kind of a throwaway statement that shouldn't be thrown around frivolously. Not not that you're saying it, but people said it to you. Yeah. Um, I also think that it's really really important, critical, in fact, that anybody in hip hop who is not black or brown, who is benefiting from, and exploiting the culture, has to acknowledge. We have to acknowledge our privilege. Yes. Because we are. You know, it was a privilege for me. I was embraced by a culture and by a community that was not mine and not of my making. And that was incredibly empowering for me. And I always understood that my experience, yes, I'm an Asian woman. So, yes, I have been marginalized, but it could never I would never say, oh, it's the same as being a black woman in America. No. Or it's the same as being a black man in America. I never had trouble catching a cab. Right, right? I, was never, I was never taught how to interact with the police if I got pulled over. Right. I'm not scared of what it, uh, of my kids walking out in the streets at night wear, with a hoodie on. But, you know, it's uh, my, my girlfriend, Kierna Mayo, she's so brilliant. She was editor-in-chief of Ebony, and she did this fantastic cover. It was a, pure, it was a graphic cover. And on it were the words, America loves black people. And she scrawled out people and wrote above it, culture. Hmm. And that said it all for me. Right. That's right. Because there's so many people that are like, yo, it's lit and it's this and it's that. And I wear the clothes and I know all the lyrics and I know all this and I know all that. And that's fine. And I'm not asking you necessarily to investigate any further, but if you are going to be in the industry, if you're going to be making a check, if you are going to gain social capital and access because you are working in hip hop, then you sure as fuck better be curious about the history that birthed this. And you better, I'm not saying I'm an ethnomusicologist and I can't talk about the history like that, right. but have empathy for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know, like I worked really closely with G Herbal for a while when I ran cinematic records. And, and you know the story that, uh, that I talk about in my memoir, right. and there was a white girl that worked there. And when I said, you know, when is G Herbo going to go to LA? Because he was going to perform, and she rolled her eyes and she said, "He's not going to get on a plane until we move his mother out of a, until he moves his mother out of the hood." Mm-hmm. And she said it with such disdain and with such insouciance, and I was so offended by it. Now I had listened to G Herbo's album, and look, it's not really my style. He's also. You know, at the time he was like an 18 year old kid from Chicago. That music wasn't for me, you know? And when I met him, I said, tell me about the experiences that you've had that this is what you rap about. Tell me, you know, let's talk about your mother. Let's talk about what life is like in Chicago for you. And to this day, he says, Sophia, you are the only person in the industry that has ever asked me about my family. How the fuck is that possible? It's terrible. How do you work closely with somebody? How do you make money with and off of somebody and not have any concern for their lives or their family when they're telling you, I can't go to L.A. until I move my mother out of this place that is so deeply dangerous? I I just don't understand not having the curiosity and the empathy. It's, I it's, find it really infuriating.
0: Yeah, and it's a lot of it's just it just goes to show you they don't look at them as people; they look at them as product. You're not really That's a person; right. you're a product. and That's I got to exactly move right. this product, and boy, right now you're causing me problems in my distribution chain or whatever. That's exactly right. It's a exactly. corporate corporate mentality, and it it's a terrible mentality. Um, so, uh, I you you hit on a couple of things that interested me there, and uh, you talked about you know a lot of people kind of stop discovering new music when they turn thirty. Uh, That's that's something that's mentioned. And I've seen that with so many of my friends, but I've never Mm -hmm. been that way. But there are times Mm -hmm. where you feel uninspired by whatever's happening. Um, And so I'm curious what you're into now or how you discover new music or is music just as important to you as it's always been or has that waned recently in the last couple of years?
3: Music is
2: just as important to me. So, look, when I turned 30, I took a hard ride out of the music business. I met my ex, Shrian Ming, a Shaolin monk who became my master, my partner, the father of my children. And I left music behind in terms of having real curiosity about it. Um, and what I listen to now is old music. I don't really listen to new music. I'm not, I don't really care. My, I don't have my finger on the pulse anymore. hmm if you tell me the names of artists that are on uh, 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 the charts, I don't I, I barely know any of them. That's not my focus anymore. When I did a and R, I I absolutely had to be au courant. I absolutely had to know exactly what was going on because I was an arbiter and I was a gatekeeper, right? Which which was a huge privilege. Right. And now, look, hip hop to me, more than any musical genre is youth oriented. Yes. It is by the young. Yes. For the young. Yes. About the young.
0: So much so. So
2: we can look at boy bands, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a sub-genre of pop. Hip-hop is a genre. And obviously it's not all like that, but the vast majority of it is. And that's fine that it exists there. It's just not for me anymore. Right. I have outgrown outgrown the current hip-hop. I mean, at 54 if I was listening to rap caviar and saying that that was the soundtrack to my life, I'm not saying that I wouldn't enjoy it. That's different. Mm -hmm. But if I was saying that it spoke to my soul and it's 19 and 20 year old kids talking about drinking lean and being addicted to Zans and perks, there would be, there, there would be some serious dissonance there. Yeah. Now my kids are 17 and 19 and they listen to hip hop and it's fun for them. But I, I don't have an, entryway into it. So I am no I'm not, you know, people who are sending me music all the time. I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a good judge of it anymore because I outgrew it. Yeah. It's not it's not for, and again, it's not written for me. So it's not that I can't listen to stuff and go wow. Drake can write a hell of a song. That boy can really write a song or listen to Ken, or listen to Kendrick and go wow man, is he a special lyricist or somebody like J. Cole or appreciate young thug or, you know, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not tapped into it anymore. And I don't care to be right because it's not my job anymore. So if Joey badass asked me to run pro era records, it's not because he thinks I'm so hip. Joey doesn't think I'm hip. It's not because he thinks that, I know all the all the hot new songs and I know all the underground artists. No, 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 no. He didn't ask me to do A&R. He wasn't asking me to do marketing. He asked me to run a company. Right. And that is not about being up on all the latest blogs and scouring Soundcloud for the latest artists.
0: It's it's funny to to kind of go through that and then have that realization because there's I've always said that. I mean, obviously it comes from african-americans and and puerto ricans in new york but it was essentially youth culture and it spread out and that's why it went to the burbs and all these things but if you look at like the greatest artists or the ones that you truly love why is it that after two or three records it doesn't feel the same well there's a lot of reasons but there's youthful in fact there's a song on the first tribe album youthful expression which you Mm -hmm. know sort of embodies this whole idea but once you reach success the urgency starts to wane, and the records don't mm-hmm. feel as powerful. And there was something mm-hmm. that really connected with me, and probably it had to do with my age and people's life mm-hmm. experiences. But, hey, I'm just like uh, every other guy. Hey, my favorite Jay-Z record is Reasonable Doubt. That's his best record, blah, blah, sure. blah. Sure. I, I think his second best record is 444. And the reason is, mm-hmm. is because he went through something in his life That was urgent, and so he had to get that out there, and that's why it felt differently than four records of, look at how badass this car is, I'm rich as fuck, can you guys relate to that? You can't relate to a guy that's just, I'm I'm just making another record because it's going to make money. There's nothing wrong with that, but as someone who's passionate about music, it doesn't speak to me, but that record, I was like, holy fuck, this guy's pouring his soul back out again. And I right, hadn't heard this right. in fifteen years, and it just really, really floored me for that reason.
2: Right, and so you had a different, you had a different in.
0: Yes, I could relate to it yeah. in a way yeah. that There's I was a connection. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. As a dude in my late forties yeah. now, I mean, the records ain't for me, and that's okay. I've come to grips right. with that,
2: and that's so exactly, and that's okay, and that's not to diminish them at all. Right, at all. It has. I'm not saying the music isn't good anymore. It's just not for me anymore, and yes. that's fine.
0: Yes. Um, you, so here's the other, there were well, God, there's so many different things I want to talk to you about, but you just so happen to have worked with some of my favorite artists of all time. Um, oh, okay, I, I've got a, I've got a brag that I can't even back up. I just say it to people and I say it real matter of factly, and I have no idea if it's true <laughs> or not, but I say, I'm the only person in Dallas that has seen all three D'Angelo shows here. Cause I wow. saw, I saw him when he came on, uh, you wow. know, the Brown Sugar tour. And at that point. He was a baby and he sat behind his worlitzer yeah. in a leather coat and never got up. And then the next yeah. time he came through, he was like James Brown reincarnated and working the stage. And that was the band that had Did Quest I, Love. The tour? Yes. And Pino Palladino uh-huh. and his band was just fucking oh, exactly. incredible. Yeah. And then the last yeah. uh, tour he came through where he's kind of almost interpreting the funkadelic uh, rock aspect mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. black experience. Mm-hmm. But he is one of my favorite artists of all time. And I love this idea be. that you got to experience him on a different level because you came to him later in his mm-hmm. in his sort of arc. Mm-hmm. And I found that so interesting. And by the way, I think the best songs he's ever done are the ones that he collaborated with Rafael Sadiq on, like Lady, for example. <laughs> and sure. you and you managed him as well. You've you've yeah. you've lived such a fascinating musical life to me and that's only a little part of your story.
2: Right. Um Look, D is, uh, I, I, I don't need to talk about his talent. You know, he is, you know, he has an unearthly talent. Yeah. I literally, I think he is, his talent is divine. And I, as I think Raphael's is, you know, those are both boys that came up in the church.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, I say this in my memoirs. One of the two things that D'Angelo said to me the first time we spoke was, Sophia, I'm a God-fearing man. And his, you know, how he expresses himself, just talking, I don't mean singing, how he expresses himself when we speak is so organic and earnest and humble. And funny. And one of the things that I love so much about D is how much he celebrates me. How much he says, you know, you're so smart, Sophia. You're such an amazing woman. And, you know, artists tend to be total fucking narcissists. (laughs) right? Right? Yeah, absolutely. And he is, you know, we talk about a lot of things. He is so smart. He is so intellectually curious. He devours documentaries, you know, and will share experiences. And I read him the passage that I wrote and he loved it. And he said, wow, Sophia, you're a great writer.
3: Hmm.
2: So imagine what it means to me that D'Angelo, one of the greatest writers ever, tells me that I'm a great writer.
0: Pretty fantastic. It was
2: so touching yeah. and yeah, it felt incredible. And his relationship with Raphael Sadiq, I want to speak on that for a second.
0: Yeah. I'd love to hear yes, this. I
2: have the privilege of managing both of them. They are bound in a way that I probably have never seen two artists bound. Really? They are. Yeah. There are like creative. They're create. They're like almost like creative twins, not in terms of doppelganger, not in terms of um, specific, you know, uh, mirrors. But I don't know that I've ever seen two artists that have so much mutual love of and respect for each other. I mean, to hear them talk about each other is incredible. And, you know, there are times where I would put them on the phone with each other. Or I'd be with D and I'd call Raphael, or I'd be with Raphael and I would call D. And they just laugh. (laughs) Like, they are so in tune, which is the right metaphor to use. Yeah. They are so in tune with each other. And it is such a privilege to sit in the midst of that. You know, every time I talk to D, he's like, you talk to Ray, you seen Ray, you know? Or if I see Raphael, he's like, you talk to D. you talk to Dee. Um, and yeah, they're obviously, as their own artists are incredible. But when they come together, it's potent. And I think now that I have had the privilege of seeing and hearing them interact as people and as brothers, I totally get it. You know, there are, I would say that there are probably not a lot of people, you know, the thing that about Raphael Sadiq and D'Angelo is I don't think they ever pandered. I don't think they ever cared. You know, they weren't, they weren't sitting there going, oh, okay. Um, what does the audience want to hear? What's the trend now? Right. That, that, that's not who those men are. They are artists to the core, to the core. And I'm not saying that they don't have the human doubts or insecurities, but in terms of what music am I going to make? What song am I going to write? How am I going to perform this? I don't think they ever compromised on that. And I think it comes through in in their canon.
0: Yeah, and you know, with D'Angelo, it's interesting. He's only put out three records. And so uh, back when Brown Sugar came out, Uh, I was friends before, you know, she became the thing she became. I was friends with Erica Badu. And she actually got signed. Kadar Massenberg was traveling with D'Angelo, and Erica was on that bill as the opener with her cousin Rob, who produced Apple Tree, but they were called Erica Free back then. And she opened for D'Angelo, and Kadar Massenberg saw her and was like, I want this. And you know we're gonna lose the cousin. You're become Erica Badu. It worked out well for Rob. He got production credit. But I think the first thing Erica put out was she had a duet with D'Angelo on the High School High soundtrack. But they are both, you know, Erica's sitting on all this material she'll never release. And it's crazy that D'Angelo only has three records out. But there's that thing that you're talking about where if it doesn't fit, he's not just going to put something out just to sell records. It t- it totally goes against. I guess, who he is or how he goes about what it is that he makes. And I would imagine you, you working as a manager that respects, or ha- having done that, respects the artist, but there's also labels that are yelling about budgets and timelines and all these sorts of things. You're a lot of times the person stuck in the middle of all that.
2: Yeah, but you know what I will say? D'Angelo was signed by Peter Edge, who was a, one of my friends for almost 30 years. Peter Edge is the president of RCA Records. He might be the chairman. I don't know, but he runs RCA Records. Peter is an A&R person. If you look at who runs record companies now, many of them are not a A&R and people. And that's okay, but it just means that it's led by a different sensibility. I love Peter as a person and respect him um, as the head of a label because he had so much patience with D and he really really believed in him because he is an A and R person and he knew what he had with d he knew how exceptional black messiah was i mean what other artists could be gone gone for 12, 12 years wasn't it 12 years between voodoo and black messiah it sounds about for right 12 years yeah. whatever it was he drops it he comes out nobody fucking knows it's coming and then he's number one on the pass and job poll, I think that, you know, that really prestigious list that uh, the village voice does. Right. And he gets nominated for Grammys. Not that either of those guys care about that. I mean, that speaks to me of his talent, you know, and, and one thing that I can tell you with certainty, Dean and Raphael never did it for the fame and they never did it for the money mm-hmm. ever. They never took those things into consideration. Now that's not to say that they wouldn't enjoy getting money from it or understand that fame is what it is, but that was never the engine that drove them. And I think you hear that in their music. I mean, have you heard Raphael's new album, Jimmy Lee? No. Fuck. I think it came out August 22nd. It is, I mean, I managed him for the way I see it. Which I consider his magnum opus.
0: It's a fucking great record. It is so which cool. Which is
2: a great record, yeah. but you've got to hear Jimmy Lee it's I can't about lie. his brother who died of a heroin overdose. And he has a record on there called Rikers Island, which I think is the greatest song he's ever written and ever sang. And he was I just saw him two nights ago performing it in Williamsburg. And I love Raphael's voice. I'm a huge fan, obviously. And hearing him sing it on the record and then hearing him sing it live is incredible. And he's got a song on there. Um, is it called Walk with God? And it sounds like a gospel standard, but it's an original song. I mean, look, it took him a long time, as far as I'm concerned, too fucking long. Like, oh my God, how fucking long is it going to take you to put this record out? But well worth the wait. There's another record on there called Sinner's Prayer. I mean, really, when we're done with this interview, please go listen. But the song Rikers Island is. I uh, I think every music critic in America should be talking about Rikers Island. And Raphael doesn't give a fuck about a Grammy, but he needs to win a Grammy for that. Uh, for the album, if not the song. Rikers Island is mind-blowing.
0: God, I can't wait to hear it. Mind-blowing. It's funny, you know, Amazing. when I do these podcasts, Sophia, I usually just kind of riff. And I, But I, I, I did something a little bit different. I've just scribbled down different ideas because I can go in so many different directions with you. And as you were talking about that, I had two different things written about, written down that I wanted to talk about that both pertain to what you're talking about. One, I had mm-hmm. written down financial issues because it was so mm-hmm. interesting to me. And you were talking about D'Angelo and Raphael Sadiq, don't do it for the money. You know, mm-hmm. late in the book when uh, around the time of Hurricane Sandy coming through, it sort of really underscores your financial issues. And I, I, I really w- was connected to that because I thought everything she did, she did because of what she felt was important as a, and, uh, you know, you talk about the, mm-hmm. the paper chase, everybody wants money, but that didn't necessarily dictate how you went about your business. And the single yeah. mom raising two kids and trying to hustle in New York, I just, I found that, mm-hmm. that aspect of your story to be so fascinating. Do you, do you and I don't know if the word's regret, but if you look back at your career, Do you wish that you had done things differently for financial purposes? Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no.
2: I, you know, I was raised by Korean immigrants, and we were raised never to chase money. I mean, my father, God rest his soul, was a math professor. My Mm -hmm. mother sewed clothes for other people for money. My brother's an English professor. I was absolutely expected to be an academic. So clearly, wealth was not a pursuit nor a priority for my family. In fact, we we were raised with a little bit of a disdain for it. You know, like the nouveau riche were kind of gauche and, you know, their pursuits were base. Um, I, as a, in life, as a philosophy, I don't have regrets. I don't live like that. So that does not mean that I didn't make mistakes. I made plenty of mistakes. Right. But I also believe in the bounty of the universe. And I believe that I made those mistakes and that because I am a you know, somebody that goes through self-analysis, self-interrogation and self-criticism and self-renewal. I look at those things and I go, oh, okay, Sophia, this is what you could have done differently. I learn. And if I'm learning and I get a lesson, then that's a gift. So everything is a gift. So I don't regret anything that I did. The, re- the only true regrets I have are when I was a shitty mother. And that is something, those are things that I wish that I could take back. But in terms of my career, like if I think, oh man, you know what, I never, if I hadn't gone to manage the temple, I'd be the fucking CEO of a label right now, I'd be pulling in millions of dollars a year, mm-hmm. and I'd live in a, I don't give a fuck about any of that. Listen, I'm about to be very rich and very famous based off of this memoir and going and doing public speaking. I know that, and I didn't ask for any of it. I know the price that you pay for fame. I know the toll that, exi- that is exacted when you abdicate your anonymity particularly in this era of social media and when everybody has a camera and a video camera sitting on their hands. Yep. So, no, I don't regret any of it. I don't, I would I love to have more money? Sure. Sure. You know what I would love? I would love never have to take another fucking Uber pool. I would love (laughs) not to have to look at the difference between the prices of a pool and an Uber X and go, fuck it. I don't even need to look at the pool anymore. I'm just going to take the X. I take pools. I ride a city bike all over the city. I shop at Trader Joe's. I cook every night. Mm -hmm. I barely eat out. I live really, really modestly because I don't have money like that, and I'm about to get it, but I never did anything for the money, ever. Unless it was just to be, you know, unless it was, of course, like take care of your children, you got to pay the rent.
0: Right, right. That's what the the really cool juxtapositions for all this to me was you lived in a glamorous world uh, living in an unglamorous fashion. And I think it's right. so interesting. And so one of the things I was curious about, so uh, I wrote this down as my favorite part of the book, and it's probably because I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. But nice. at, uh, you know, that really low moment when your daughter wanted to spend her, at 10 years old, wanted to spend her own money on the hmm. pizza. Yeah. Because you just the had that girl. that moment where yeah. you were just at your wit's end. And I'm like, yeah. so I'm always interested. And now your kids are, they're both college age, right? Or out of college? Um, I,
2: yes, very, very close. Yes, that's right. My son is, a, my son is... Um, a sophomore
0: in college and my daughter's a senior in high school. Okay. So do, and, and thing, I, I know that age and things are going to change, but what do, do they know what they want out of life? Do they know what their direction is going to be? Has How has your philosophies and obviously having a dad, that's a Shaolin monk. That's very right. unique. Uh, what is their perspective living in the modern world with social media and, and all of these types of things?
2: Um. Look, They, they are, they love social media. They're always on their phones. They're totally into gaming. Um, Those are not battles that I'm going to fight. You know, at the core, at the end of the day, my children are good people. I raise good people. They are kind. They are just, they are empathetic. They defend people that don't defend themselves. They stick up for people that are bullied. They want everybody to be comfortable. Their hearts break when they see things that are so fucked up in this world. At the end of the day, that's all I care about is that my children are good people. My son... At one point, was interested in cancer research, and now has shifted into comp sci because he really likes um, computers. And he taught himself how to code at 11. Wow! My daughter is kind of at the other end of the spectrum. She loves uh, her major. She goes to a high school called Brooklyn Tech, and uh, they have you choose a major. And the major she chose was SSR, which is social science research. And she's really into world cultures. She's really fascinated by how different cultures operate and history um how language impacts things so she's going to go into international relations so they're you know all i care about is that they're good people and that they pursue their passion and if it means that they don't make money i don't give a shit and i don't think they care either really because i'm gonna hustle mommy's gonna hustle mommy will make money i'll make sure that whatever it is that you do, I'll support it. I will say this, praise Jesus, neither of them wanted
0: to be a rapper. I'd be like,
3: oh,
0: <laughs> Run, oh, run.
2: That I, that I don't want you to do.
0: Okay, why do you think I wrote this down? Softness and gender.
2: Softness and gender?
0: I wrote that down as a concept or as a talking point and listening, and it really more towards the end of the memoir. Why do you think I wrote yeah, that down? Yeah, so
2: it probably because you were listening to the, you listened to the Raphael and the mess. Meth- well, that chapter, right? I, was,
0: I was. Yeah. The part about and also the way, uh, you know, you have to be very aggressive to exist in the world that you exist, not only because it's the New York state of mind, but the business is a shark infested sure. business. Uh, and it's this idea of gender and femininity and you you wanting to have that softness in relationships, but also the way that you have to sort of carry yourself to exist. In the business world that you exist in, and that's such an interesting yeah. juxtaposition. I mean, the bu- the book is called yeah. "The Baddest Bitch in the Room," and right. uh, you are very defiant on that cover. And it's so yeah. it's it's so interesting to me the idea of expectations, but it also says a lot about like. You know the the male perspective of well, I need you to be this in order to make me feel absolutely. the ways that I feel. So absolutely, it, it, absolutely, I, th- there were those were great revelations in that about hey, even though I'm in here kicking ass, I still want to be in touch with these aspects of femininity and these sort of p- aspects of my traditional gender and, for lack of a better word, yeah,
2: yes, yeah. I mean, look, I was a minority within a minority within a minority.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So. I'm in hip hop, right, which is black music, which is already the minority, but it is also male dominated. So and I'm a woman. In that, but then put on top of that, that I'm an Asian woman, so I learned really quickly that I had to conduct myself a certain way. Now, I've never been high and I'd never been drunk. So being professional was never part of the question. Right. I was never going to be sloppy, oh, you know, throwing up in the corner or falling asleep or missing, missing deadlines or getting somewhere later, missing airplanes. But I also knew that, and this is not fair, right? And this is patriarchy. I knew that I had to conduct myself a certain way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I couldn't sleep with artists. Believe me, there were plenty of artists I would have loved to sleep with, and I didn't because I knew that that it would get out and that and that it would soil my reputation. Again, right. not fair. Right. But I but you know, I walked a tightrope. And I walk a tightrope every day and I think that what happened was that I had this reputation because I was this like no nonsense, take care of business, take no prisoners, get shit done. That's Sophia Chang, you know you hear Jim Jarmusch said say you know no need to worry we've got Sophia <laughs> she's the glue right <laughs> yes so i was you know uh, like if you talk to the guys in the clan or the guys in tribe and stuff like that they never wanted to hang out with me it's not like oh let's hang out so that's not the relationship we had mhm uh, we love each other but it wasn't necessarily about hanging out because I, it's it's not it, we're not really social that way.
0: Was any of it matriarchal? So,
2: you think? Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Like if you see me around those boys, like like the night that I recorded "Mess," after we finished recording, we just talked for like an hour, and it was late, and he was sick, and he was tired, and he had to he had to leave at four thirty, and we sat there talking, talked about family and stuff like that, and while we were talking, I was packing his bag. And he looked at me and he said, that's just Sophie. She can't stop moving. And I did. I was like, okay, what are we doing with this? Where are we putting your sneakers and stuff? But I think what happened was in the earlier days, I created this, I kind of had this shell around me and I forgot to stay in touch with my softer side. And I came to realize that that part of me is real. You know, when people, when women think that they have to act like men in order to succeed, I, I really, or that men say that women have to act like men in order to succeed, I really bristle at that notion because what it does is it minimizes the power of being a woman.
0: It's, it's, it's so a, powerful. Yeah, it's a reinscriptive mentality. You know, to yes. say you need to conform to this, if you're going to succeed here, you need to be this other thing. And it's another way of manipulating and owning in a lot of ways, right?
2: Absolutely. No question. No question.
0: I have to get to this because I only have 10 minutes left with you. I swear to God, I could talk to you for three fucking hours. <laughs> but uh, I want you to know this. Uh, you just mentioned Jim Jarmish. My wife bought Mm -hmm. me the Ghost Dog soundtrack on vinyl when it came out, and we have a dog. Wow,
2: yes, wifey. Okay,
0: we we have a dog named full name Bill Ghostbusting Ass Murray, and I swear to God, (laughs) coffee and cigarettes. Absolutely, that's what. So, so like one of my first heroes as a child was Bill Murray. Like I fucking loved Bill Murray. I'm 48 years old, so he's like the hey, the white guy that everything works out for, and he's fucking over his boss, and everyone can suck it, and you know, he's he's that guy. And so he's like, and I really think he was sort of rediscovered by my generation when they started making films, Lost in Translation, the Wes Anderson movies. Like, that's my generation showing the other generation how much we appreciated and love Bill Murray. And now, he's this other entity. Well, that scene with the Rizza and the Jiza and Bill Murray and coffee and cigarettes and a fucking Jim Jarmusch movie, that is my whole world combining into 15 minutes of awesomeness. And... Oh. It's so special to me. I love it so much. But I'm so curious about the aspects of your life that are the film world. And I'm wondering how much more you're going to get into that. So I the reason you got on my radar is because of the Wu-Tang doc on Showtime. First of all, did you like how that came out?
2: I think they did a good job. And look, just like you saying, you could talk to me for three to four hours. I think you could do a 10-hour documentary on Wu-Tang. Right, right. You, know, you can only get so much into four hours. But this is what's incredible to me. It has been 26 years since they came out. Mm-hmm. And we're two decades away from the height of their relevance, when they were biggest, right? Right And 26 years after their first album came out, within four months of each other, there is a showtime, four-part docu series and a Hulu. Ten-part scripted series about Wu Tang Clan.
0: I can't wait to see it. Who I has hope to it's good. Do that? No, I know. Have
2: to do that, and you know what? That is all the RZA. Yeah, he's a now genius. RZA doesn't RZA can't do what he does without Wu Tang, obviously. But just in terms of this right here, in terms of the docu series, and in terms of the scripted show, that's all RZA's ingenuity. So and it's incredible.
0: It, yeah, and it's it's. I mean, it's all, I think the timing is so perfect on all this stuff too. But what it, what is next for you in terms of the film world? Because I didn't. You've sold some screenplays before, right?
2: I sold a screenplay to HBO about um, Yan Ming and about Riza, and that's shelved. I don't know if that will ever see the light of the day. But where I want to exist more is in television or what we broadly call television. You know, television and streaming. I'm developing a television show about myself, a scripted series about myself. I'm developing a, a television series about my ex sister in law, Carrie Goldberg, who is an attorney at the forefront of um, internet privacy law and sexual assault and a brand revenge porn law. Like she's, she's, you know, she's sat, she's spoken in front of Congress and stuff. I have a number of other projects in the hopper, but. I will be a showrunner one day. I will run a show one day. I don't know if it will be my show, but I have no doubt about it.
3: Oh wow,
1: that's because really what cool.
2: I've discovered after thirty years of managing storytellers is that I'm a fucking storyteller, mm-hmm. and that the reason I am so damn good at helping artists tell their stories is because I am a storyteller. And you know, in talking to Raekwon about this, Raekwon was the first one of the of the clan that recorded this and he was the first domino and I'm so grateful to him for that. After we'd finished recording, I said, you know, it's interesting for me now to be the artist. And he said, so if you've always been an artist and I never looked at myself that way. And like you said, I say that throughout, I say that throughout the memoir, how Chris Lighty, God rest his soul, said she's really creative. And I never thought of myself as creative. I just kind of thought of myself as cogs and wheels. And Ray said, you know, so if you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You know, it's, it's beautiful that you're getting your story out in this way. And they've all, they're all so happy for me. And I'm so, so, so grateful to be able, you know, to be able to tell my story, but also that I get to honor the people in my life. I get to tell the story of my mother escaping from North Korea at 14 and my father being beaten by a Japanese teacher when he's the same age. Right. I get to tell people, what does it really mean when I say my name is Sophia Chang and I was raised by Wu-Tang? I hope that you saw, you heard in my memoir, a side of Wu-Tang you've never heard before and seen before. You know, what I really wanted to do with my memoir is I wanted to show people the Wu-Tang clan that I know I'm not going to talk about their music. There are people way more qualified than me to break down their rhymes and this is that sample and this is how they came up with that song. That's not what I'm an expert on. The only place where I have expertise on Wu-Tang clan is on our relationship and who Wu-Tang are to Sophia Chang and who I think Sophia Chang is the Wu Tang Clan, and I really wanted to expose people to their utter and
0: profound humanity. Well, I think you did it. Uh, I, I love it, Thank and I, I had forgotten to. I'm sorry that I didn't didn't even address the amazing immigration story of your parents because that's Thank you. that's Don't almost, apologize. But I, I want to leave you with this, uh, based on what you just told me. So Mm -hmm. when you live in, so you lived hip hop at its era, at its peak, Mm -hmm. right? The the rise Mm -hmm. of it. So you saw it up close. So one of the things you probably don't realize is what how it was consumed in the satellites. So let me give you an example. When you're when you're in your teens in the late '80s in Dallas, Texas, you're experiencing hip hop. You're not living it because it's happening in New York, but you're experiencing it through liner notes. And you're reading, and so you're. you're, you're oh,
3: liner notes. Yes, yeah. yes.
0: Liner notes are the shit. And so you're really, you're reading about their friends, but you're thinking there's the, oh, well, these people must be really super important and they must really matter. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so you start thinking about all these things. Well, Chris Lighty, uh the first time I ever saw him was on the back of the What You Waiting For 12 inch. It had. Three- oh,
2: my God, yes. And he has his hands up saying four.
0: Yes. And he is on the flip yes. side. And so yes, like he's
2: the fourth jungle brother. Like he's oh the, my god. Like yeah.
0: he's the fourth jungle brother. And so in your mind as a consumer, you're creating this story about this person. Who is this person? And what does he do? And what does it mean? And I'm mm-hmm. looking in here and one of the things that you did for me is you filled mm-hmm. in all these gaps I have about who Chris Lighty was and what he meant to these people. I've always known mm-hmm. that he was a part of things. I didn't know mm-hmm. his affiliation with Scott LaRock. I didn't know mm-hmm. all this stuff. I didn't know his background. I didn't know the way he... Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you whether you realize you're doing this or not, there's a lot of people out there that I hope get to hear this because as we consume this stuff, we created things in our minds to fill in the gaps. And I, that was maybe you know, one of the most important things to me about this experience was learning about him, who he was, what he did and what he meant to this whole thing.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, you should listen to the mogul podcast. The mogul podcast goes so much more in depth than I could. And I learned so much in that again, what I hope that people get from, sorry, that's New York ambient noise. What I hope that people get from, What I say about Chris Lighty, just like with Wu-Tang, is who that man was to me as a friend and as somebody who loved me so deeply and cared for me and protected me so ferociously. And, you know, there's, you know, Chris Lighty, the podcast was called Mogul, for Christ's sake. He was larger than life and he was a big guy and he was intimidating and he would curse people out and he would scare the shit out of people. But me, that was just my boy. Like that was my friend. He would just come over and we would sit in my apartment and we would talk and we would laugh or we would just go out and eat and, or we would go to the movies and I got to have this relationship with him that existed outside of the industry. And that was so special. And it was this place where I got to go. And I think he would say that he got to go. That was like a sanctuary. You know, Chris was, I'll never forget. Russell Simmons said at his funeral, he's when he was eulogizing, he said something like Chris Lighty, was on planes as much as the rest of us take the train. (laughs) He was traveling all the time. He always had a million balls in the air. He was so busy. He was such a hustler. He was such a superb entrepreneur and always had all of these different things cooking and bubbling. And every time I said, I need to see you, Chris, he made time. And his assistant, I asked his assistant, you know, Rashim, how did you guys know before you even met me? who I was. Did Chris tell you? And he said, no, so he didn't need to. But you would walk into that office and you would hug him and he would hug you in a way he didn't hug anybody else. Wow. We saw the love there and we didn't see that with anybody else. So we immediately knew how important you were to him. You know, we were, we were really friends like that. He was really, I say that he was my rock of Gibraltar. When I lost Chris, I lost a piece of me. I don't walk as tall. I don't feel as strong. And it's not, you know, it's not that I don't feel strong. I just don't feel quite as strong. You know, I don't have that place to go where I could just, he would just say, come in, Soph, and just close the door and just let me lean over and just cry on his shoulder. And he always wore these beautiful, beautifully, perfectly, pristinely clean and perfectly pressed, blue chambray shirt and I just remember so many times looking down and the back of it was just stained with my tears
3: hmm.
2: he would just let me cry and he was not an affectionate guy he was not into public displays of affection at all at all he was not that guy he wasn't like he wasn't like ghosts he was like come here so for meth he was like come here so funny and, and they just swallowed me in their arms Chris was not that guy but he knew that I needed it and he let me be there and he would just sit there in silence and listen as I talked and I cried and I told him what was going on. And I didn't need anything more for him than just to be there. And he was there always. And that's a loss. I don't have that anymore. Not with Chris. I have other people, but not Chris.
0: Yeah. And, and it's
2: uh... devastating.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you what, I mean, obviously there's people that have greater importance to you, but there were probably way too many RIPs in this audiobook than most people can Isn't it
2: amazing? It's so the symposium only one on age appropriate, my father.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, you could do oh, yeah. you could do like a whole lecture on that. Lord have mercy, that what is that a reflection of, right? So Exactly. Uh, exactly. I know, I know your time is limited. I can't thank you enough. This was really, really awesome. Thank you. I, I don't know if you remember My this pleasure. or not, but you know, the first thing you said when I, you called me back, which was nice. You called me back was I'm not in the music business anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not in the music business anymore. Is there one burning last question that you want to ask me or did you pretty much get everything you need?
0: Um, you know, I, I, I guess the other thing I was going to ask you is what, W- will how much other stuff do you see yourself doing with the RZA or is y'all's working relationship? Do you think done?
2: I, you know, we haven't formally worked together in a long time. You know, he is pretty much the executive producer of this audiobook. That- I called him and asked him, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What do you, would you listen to this? Would you listen to that? So if use this, use that, use this take, use this beat, you know, he, he is, a, he is effectively, you know, the executive producer of my audiobook. I don't know, will we work together again in an official capacity? I, I'm not really sure. But when I told him, you know, I did a, I did a lecture for Spotify uh, a couple of years ago. And I read him my closing, just the closing. And, you know, part of it was um, as a petite Asian woman, and I write this in my memoir, as a petite Asian woman, I never had the luxury to simply lean in. I had to learn to be big and strong in other ways. I had to kick down the motherfucking door. And as the RZA would say, my tongue is my sword. And I assure you, I have eviscerated many in my day. And then I go into my closing and I read it to him. I said, I just want you to hear this. He was like, okay, go ahead, Soph. And when I was finished, he said, wow, Soph, congratulations. You found your thing. (laughs) And I, he said, you need to write your book. I'm just remembering that he said that. He said, you need to write your book and you need to keep lecturing. And one day I can see you standing in arenas speaking in front of tens of thousands of people. And you know what's extraordinary about that? That is exactly the vision I had for myself. And that's what makes him a genius is he recognizes talent. He knew just from me reading him 400 words maybe less, it was probably 200 words, just from those 200 words, he immediately saw me standing in an arena, speaking to 25,000 people. And I said, and you know what? If you're nice to me, I'll get you good tickets. And he said, "Nah, so. That's okay. I'll buy my own. (laughs) Because that's, that's what God put me here to do. Buddha, Allah. That's what the divine put me here to do is I'm supposed to be standing on a stage with a microphone in my hand, speaking to audiences and sharing my, story, telling my story, the ups and the downs and the triumphs and the failures and the heartbreaks and the disappointments and the joys and all of it. Because I now understand that through sharing my story that I can be in service of other people. That's what, that's what I'm really going to be doing is I'm going to be doing public speaking.
0: Well, this was a fucking awesome experience for me. I, I can't think thank you enough you. for the time. And uh, and I I would like to stay friends. I'm going to hit you up from time to time. Please uh? do. I hope you don't Anytime. mind. Anytime.
2: And let me know if you're in New York. I will never mind.
0: <laughs> That's cool. Okay. Thank you so much, self. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I really enjoyed that one. I feel like I could have talked to her for hours, and I learned a lot, too. So since we recorded that, I was able to go hear the new Raphael Sadiq album, and it is awesome. And I learned of the Mogul podcast, which actually does go into detail the story of Chris Lighty. So thank you for illuminating so many different things for me, Sophia Chang. If you like this podcast, we'd love it if you subscribed. And if you have any ideas for content you want to hear on Radios and Tunnels, by all means, hit me up on the Twitters, at Skin Way. Thank you to my homegirl Allie for a little extra production, and big thanks to my main man, Mark Fredo Friedman at Fredo Nation for helping us produce this particular podcast. And if you're a big hip hop head, we have a future session coming up with the legendary hip-hop producer, Large Professor. Until next time, thanks to the Jizza for the inspiration.